I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. Give us a second, guys. We can move back to where you'd like. We can move back to where you'd like here. We are live on the air at the moment. This is the four of us. We are one team. I'm sorry? You're under arrest. Okay. Do you mind whoa, whoa, telling whoa, whoa, me whoa. why I'm under arrest, sir? Why, why am I under arrest, sir? If you're just tuning in, you are watching our correspondent, Omar Jimenez, being arrested by state police. That was the shocking sound of CNN reporter Omar Jimenez and his crew getting arrested live on national television while covering events in Minneapolis. It was the latest outrage from a city that has been convulsed with protests and violence ever since the disclosure of that viral video showing a city police officer restraining an unarmed African-American man with a knee on the black man's neck as the man lay on the ground pleading, I can't breathe. The events from Minneapolis this week seemed emblematic of a country in crisis, with a president whose first instinct is always to divide and inflame, tweeting his threats to bring in the U.S. military, and then adding, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. We'll discuss with Vanita Gupta, the former chief of the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division, during a period under President Obama that it was intensely focused on investigating police abuses. And we'll also talk to Gupta about the mounting concerns about the potential threat to this year's presidential election and the right to vote on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So, you know, our uh, old friend Jack Schaefer over at Politico tweeted this morning, things are starting to get a 1968 feel to them. And I hadn't thought about it in that way, but when you look at the riots going on right now in Minneapolis and elsewhere around the country, the deranged tweets from our... uh, president and uh, the threats to a free press, the First Amendment, uh, so much else. One begins to see how uh, the, the 1968 seems like something we will all be reliving this year. Well, people have pointed out that when the president says, uh, make America great again, he's really hearkening back to a time when America maybe was not so great. In this particular instance, it's the the 1960s. And that quote, when the looting starts, the shooting starts, or whatever it was, harkens back to the Miami police chief, Walter Headley, in 1967, who, among other things, talked about crackdowns on slum hoodlums, and uh, that we don't mind being accused of police brutality. 
Well, let's not forget Chicago and the Democratic Convention and the police riot in Chicago. Right. But, uh, right. but you know, this is you know, this is not just crazy rhetoric, deranged rhetoric from the president. It is very close to the line of, you know, incitement to violence. Right. And back in 1967, when Walter Headley did this, you know, a lot of people say that that is part of what sparked rioting in Miami. So words have consequences. And uh, we have talked on this podcast a lot about how, you know, we become inured to the kind of bonkers things that the president tweets and don't shine a spotlight enough on like how dangerous some of them are. And I think this is a good example of that. By the way, the, the Associated Press obituary of Headley said that uh, he called him the architect of a crime crackdown that sent police dogs and shotgun-toting patrolmen into Miami's slums in force. And that was the guy that Trump specifically was quoting in that yeah. tweet about uh, the shooting start. So um, uh, what a great uh, role model for law enforcement, somebody like that. But look, we also talked the other day in our great chat with um, Kara Swisher about uh, Twitter and uh, um, whether Twitter was finally going to start policing Trump's uh, incendiary and false tweets. They have not taken down the tweets about the former Joe Scarborough staffer, which is what triggered Swisher's column. But they have started to uh, post these labels on Trump tweets. They did identify the looting starts, uh, shooting starts tweet as something that violates its policies. They didn't take it down. Well, and, and violates its policies because it glorifies violence is what they very specifically said. And I have to say, you know, I, I'm a little surprised that Twitter was actually willing to kind of escalate this fight with Trump because they seemed a little tepid about it at first. Um, and this certainly does take it to another level. And, you know, we'll right. see how, how Trump right. responds. And it came right after Trump signed that executive order that seemed to contemplate some sort of federal crackdown on Twitter and uh, other social media firms for what they put up on their content. Of course, his only uh, concern is bias against conservatives, not what a lot of us see as uh, far more threat from social media firms. And that is the blatantly false disinformation and conspiracy theories that um, linger up on these social media sites, unpoliced and I mean, uncontradicted. Yeah, but, uh, but what makes no sense about his attack on Twitter is, you know, he keeps calling for the repeal of Section 230 of the um, Communications and in- Indecency Act. That's not going to help you know, a lot of his uh, uh, followers who are pretty uh, no. uh, active on Twitter uh, because that's the, that's the They're provision. They're the ones who are going to get banned from Twitter. Uh, right. And, that's and, the provision right. of the law right. that immunizes these platforms and makes it hard for them. So it, it's it just, as usual, yeah. there's no logic to it. It's just like uh, right. lashing out, uh, no forethought. And yet it's destructive. Right. Now, just coming back to Minneapolis, because, you know, the events there are so disturbing. First of all, clearly there is rioting going on and that's bad and it needs to be stopped. And some use of force is probably going to be required for that, even as some of these protests and violence starts to not starts to has already spread to other cities. But look, we've all watched that video of uh, George Floyd and, you know, the events that led 
to his death. I am baffled by the comments of the district attorney in which he gave a press conference yesterday suggesting that there was other evidence out there that's preventing him from arresting these officers. I would sure like to know what he's referring to. He issued uh, his office issued this kind of bland clarification that did not clarify very much at all, suggesting that all evidence needed to be looked at on its face. George Floyd was arrested, we know, because he was a presumed suspect in a forgery case. Forgery, not exactly a capital crime. Hard to imagine there's anything that in any way justify what we saw on that video. Yeah, absolutely. And we don't know what we don't know. But as you say, very hard to imagine what that could be that would any in any way exonerate, especially uh, the police officer who had his, his knee on... Um, George Floyd's neck. I I do want to pick up on one thing you said before, which is saying that, you know, with the rioting, you know, there may be a need uh, for law enforcement to step in. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure that's true. But I have to say, and this is kind of echoing the theme that we began with, which is that this is a kind of a throwback to the 60s. I mean, what I'm seeing, and I think there are generational divides here, that because there is so much frustration that there has been so little accountability in these cases, and they just keep happening over and over again, and this kind of fatalism that's settled in, I am beginning to get a sense of like a more of a kind of a tolerance for these kinds of protests that lead to rioting and that can lead to violence, and that there is sort of a, a perversion of how law enforcement is dealing with all of this, that the emphasis becomes on dealing with the hoodlums, the word that was used back in the 60s, or the thugs, as as uh, Trump refers to them, and not dealing with the underlying uh, crime that sparked the protests. And I have to say, I even see it in the conversations between you know, my daughter and her friends. They, they are talking about how police departments, these institutions are in some ways not redeemable. And there is a movement in this country to raise them to the ground and rebuild them from scratch because uh, they have become corrupt, because the cultural and systemic issues of bias and excessive use of force are so ingrained that you're going to have to do something quite radical to actually get back to where we we should be. I don't accept that, but that is something that you hear more and more people talk about. And um, the more you hear... those arguments being made, you're going to hear the counter arguments. We're going to be in a culture war over these issues. That is going to be a real problem for this country going forward. And what do you need in situations like this? We'll talk to Vanita Gupta about it, but you need leadership. Right. A couple of other uh, thoughts, or at least one other, I hate to be narrowly political here, but I think uh, these events are going to be a real problem if they have not already doomed uh, Amy Klobuchar's bid to be Biden's vice president. Uh, Amy Klobuchar was the Hennepin County attorney for years, including during a period that this officer, Coven, was uh, there were complaints about him. He was investigated. He was never charged. Now, it is true that the grand jury, after Klobuchar became U.S. senator, left uh, her previous office, voted not to charge the guy. But uh, the totality of the events in Minneapolis, the the clear longstanding problems that that police department has, 
I think it's going to make it very hard for Biden to choose her as his vice presidential pick. And conversely, it probably um, boosts the uh, chances for, say, Kamala Harris to be the pick. The need to have an African-American on the ticket, I think, uh, only increases as a result of all this. Yeah, I I think that's right. It it is important to point out that Klobuchar actually, and this was clarified really in the last couple of days, the DA there made a public statement about this. Klobuchar had no role in reviewing the Coven case uh, or any of the allegations against him. But she does have a controversial record in Minnesota. You know, there are cases, you know, non-prosecutions and police abuse cases, which got scrutiny during the uh, primary campaign. And I have talked to people who are close to Biden, and uh, they say that it's just a non-starter. But she d- she did have, I think, a pretty good chance at a certain point because uh, Joe Biden's, you know, one of his kind of top standards for who he's going to pick as vice president is someone who he feels simpatico with. And we were told that he felt very simpatico with Amy Klobuchar. I agree with you. I think this definitely raises the prospects of uh, Kamala Harris getting the nod, even though Kamala Harris, who's a prosecutor, was a prosecutor for many years. Yeah, as well, she's got her own issues, but, but has her own issues. But, look, but, but not on this specific the, issue. Minneapolis is going to be a metaphor in the same way that Chicago was a metaphor in 1968. And I think that makes it you know, almost impossible for Biden to pick the former Hennepin County district attorney as his vice presidential running mate. But look, um, there's a lot of substantive issues, non-political, but important. We want to discuss about all this with Vanita Gupta. So uh, let's get on with the show. It's no secret that our world has been interrupted. A World Interrupted is a daily podcast telling stories of coronavirus and its impact on the economy. We want to cover the issues in the macro, global economics, the stock market, and our political climate. We'll also cover the micro stories, maybe the ones you don't hear as much about in the news or the media. We hope you'll listen and be a part of the journey. So subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We now have with us uh, Vanita Gupta, the president and CEO of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, and the former chief of the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division. Vanita, welcome to Skullduggery. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. So you are probably one of the best people to talk to today about the events in Minneapolis. As the chief of the Civil Rights Division during the Obama years, you investigated big city police departments for civil rights abuses, Baltimore, Chicago. You also did Ferguson. As you watch the events in Minneapolis and in the aftermath of that horrible video, First, give us your first thoughts. I mean, clearly, there's a lot of the the police officers have been fired, but they haven't yet been charged with any crimes. What's your takeaway at this moment? Look, I think the incident itself is horrific. And the kind of aftermath of the incident is, I think, really shaking everyone in this country who is viewing this, I think, For black people, the string of events that have happened in the last several weeks in this country have been so deeply painful. Um, And I fundamentally believe that we have no leadership in Washington. I am imagining 
what I would have been. I would have been in Minneapolis as the head of the Civil Rights Division immediately following the incident, deployed by the Attorney General, uh, meeting with community activists, with the police chief, with Mr. Floyd's family. That's what we did. We did that after Freddie Gray. We did it after um, Laquan McDonald in Chicago. Uh, We were not a perfect Justice Department. We did not do everything right. But in this instance, the lack of palpable leadership at the national level, this is not a local issue. You know, I think Ferguson, in many ways, blew open again the kind of uh, lid on um, police violence, racial justice, public safety in America. And these are not local issues. These are national issues also that demand national leadership working with local leaders. So it's painful. And the police officers have not been arrested. There's been a lot of talk on social media and other media about the kind of side-by-side images of the armed white protesters in the state house, in the state houses around the country, kind of aggressively approaching law enforcement and nothing happening to them. And the arrest of protesters yesterday night, the arrest of journalists, um, and just and, and the fact that the police officers themselves have, while they were fired, and I have to give great credit to the chief for acting swiftly in that regard, the justice system around, you know, the, the lock yet of arrest of the officers, I think all of this is just compounding the level of pain and frustration in the country. Well, let me ask you, Vanita, because you've sat in that chair at the Justice Department having to make these kinds of decisions about prosecuting police officers. And clearly what Americans are waiting for and what people in Minneapolis are waiting for is is action. And they, they want to see these police officers arrested. But first of all, you know, the first steps would be for local authorities to charge these police officers. It would take a while before the Justice Department would bring a civil rights action. But what would the head of the Civil Rights Division be doing or the Justice Department be doing at this point to assist the uh, local authorities in Minneapolis? To What leverage would they have to, to push for an arrest? Is there anything that you would be doing beyond what you mentioned before, which is to say to be on the ground, to be working with community organizers, th- those sorts of things? Yeah. So, I mean, aside from being on the ground, which actually is no small thing, because I think having the kind of voice of the federal government there locally means something. But I think beyond that, the FBI would be helping to investigate the matter. Uh, Yesterday, the Justice Department did announce that it was investigating and that the U.S. Attorney's Office and Civil Rights Division were involved in this effort, which is a level up than just the FBI investigating. It means that federal prosecutors are also considering whether they will get involved in the prosecution if there is one. But And I think the criminal accountability piece is really important. But I have also said that the federal law is so restricted on, there's it's one law, it has the highest criminal intent standard in criminal law. So that's why the Justice Department has not been able to prosecute cases that have really been incredibly horrible uh, because they have to require being able to prove that a police officer violated a person's constitutional rights, which in this case is absolutely unquestionable. And secondarily, that they knew what they were doing at the time was in violation of the law and did it anyway. And it sounds really simple, but it's actually an incredibly difficult and high bar to prove. And then you've got the bias that's built into juries. So there's a lot of complicated things there. But secondarily, outside of a criminal accountability, which is, I think, been woefully lacking in this country, it's why people are so frustrated. 
criminal accountability is about one or two or three, or in this case, potentially four police officers being held to account for their actions that day. Minneapolis and the Minneapolis Police Department have had a long history of really painful uh, incidents of killings of unarmed uh, civilians, of race relations broken. I mean, that's why you're seeing the kind of level of frustration pouring out into the streets every night right now. And we would have strongly considered opening at the Civil Rights Division a pattern and practice investigation. This is an investigation that you know, would look at everything in the Minneapolis Police Department from use of force problems to training, accountability, supervision, the kinds of systemic issues that infect a culture of policing. Um, yesterday, I tweeted this out, but the, the local union chief in Minneapolis has had a long uh, history of antagonism to the community. And I'm saying that very lightly. There have been much stronger accusations about his own affiliations. But, you know, when the mayor a year ago tried to uh, abolish a kind of training, a warrior type training um, in Minneapolis, the union chief went ahead in defiance and hired and spent money to re-engage trainers to kind of promote this warrior thinking. And that's the kind of thing that infects, that's about the culture. Sort of follow up on this concept of warrior training, because I actually saw your tweet and it was something that I had not heard about. I, I gather that is, is a kind of fear-based training that is supposed to prioritize police safety over the community's safety. And I know it's been abolished, but I mean, if these police officers have been getting these kind, this kind of training and it's kind of seeped into the culture there, you know, it's going to take a long time, it would seem to me, to change a culture. And also, to what extent is this kind of warrior training prevalent around the country? Is this something that's unique there, or is it something that we're seeing all around the country? So it is not unique to Minneapolis. When President Obama launched the task force on 21st century policing in the aftermath of Ferguson, there was an explicit engagement on this issue of whether law enforcement should be warriors versus guardians. And the task force came out with a set of findings around the need for law enforcement to be guardians in their communities and to end this warrior type mentality. And there was a lot of exposure of warrior trainings, police departments that were recruiting on a very warrior mentality. And so it isn't unique to Minneapolis. It, it was thought of as having kind of seeped into law enforcement leadership culture that this was something to absolutely move away from. But we still see remnants of it. And there are a lot of concerns, too, about, you know, uh, officers that have been repeat offenders on use of force just kind of re being recycled in police department to police department, kind of with, you know, sharing out this warrior mentality around without any accountability. The officer Chauvin, who had his knee on Mr. Floyd's neck, had a number of uh, disciplinary reports against him for use of force and was supported by a union that clearly had adopted and was seeking to continue to promote this mentality. So, and I've always said, you know, policing and police departments are an institution. Um, changing institutional culture doesn't happen overnight, but you can't be afraid of not having the silver bullet to, to address the problem and just not do anything. Like there is a role that the Justice Department has played in some key departments in helping to turn, it takes it takes a long time and it's it takes a lot of commitment to do it. But this is work that this Justice Department and this administration have completely walked away from. And in really? fact, 
have supported aggressive, aggressive treatment of people um, during arrests. Vanita, you mentioned that uh, Minneapolis has a long, painful history of abuses in its police department. Was Minneapolis on your radar screen when you were chief of the Civil Rights Division? Did you have complaints about um, police practices in Minneapolis? And did you ever begin any sort of investigation to look at these complaints? We were definitely aware of Minneapolis. It was on our radar during uh, my tenure at the Justice Department. Jamar Clark was killed and uh, provoked a series, and also Philando Castile, who wasn't killed by the Minneapolis Police Department, but was in a neighboring county. But both of these things really highlighted just how fraught They were awful, awful incidents and highlighted just how fraught the kind of tensions were locally. And so it was on our radar. The Community-Oriented Policing Services Department in the Justice Department had been engaging in technical assistance with the Minneapolis Police Department and had investigated also the treatment of protesters after the Jamar Clark killing and had done a report about this. And so it was most certainly on our radar. As you know, or as you may know, Michael, there were a lot of police departments on our radar. And we were ultimately, despite the fact of how profile this work was, we were actually, we were very judicious about where we would go. It's a small team at the Justice Department of career investigators and lawyers that do this work. There's 17,000 police departments in this country. And we were, we had consent decrees in 15. We had investigations in 25. Really significant because the consent decrees became models and bases for best practices and for other police departments would look at these, at what we were doing in these jurisdictions. But it wasn't, we couldn't, we weren't going to be everywhere. But it's why the Justice Department had a lot of different points of entry and supports for producing reform and engaging police departments and community leaders on this. And by and large, those interventions have been downgraded or actually stopped almost altogether. And the the Justice Department, you don't hear from the attorney general. This attorney general couldn't show up in Minneapolis and have any credibility with the activists there. Um, So there's a lot of different things going on right now um, where the Justice Department's like, yes, they're doing the criminal investigation, but they're largely absent from a broader conversation and have actually made things worse. Just to to pick up on that, I'm looking at the Justice Department website right now, and uh, they have nothing on the events in Minneapolis at all up there. No press release about the criminal investigation, no words uh, at all for the community. But just on the Minneapolis matter, you say, was on your radar screen. Did you consider opening a pattern and practice investigation of the uh, Minneapolis Police Department? How close were you to doing something along those lines? And if you didn't, why not? Well, so the cops office was in Minneapolis and we were we were waiting to kind of understand what the outcomes there would be. And we, it was on our radar. We weren't, I don't think that we were like on the verge of opening up in Minneapolis. We were, I, you may not recall, but Chicago, the largest police department, municipal police department in the country, we had opened up that investigation about seven months prior to the close of the administration. And we needed to get that investigation done. Chicago was a police department with a very long history and of abuse. We needed to get the Baltimore consent decree negotiated. I frankly think that this this area of the Civil Rights Division in a, in a 
pro-civil rights administration needs to be expanded. It needs to have more funding. It needs to be given more uh, kind of room to maneuver to be able to meet the kinds of needs that existed in places like Minneapolis and around the country. Because we weren't able to go to into a lot of police departments that were clamoring for the kind of intervention. It, ours was the most aggressive intervention that the Justice Department had. There were, as I said, these other ways that the Justice Department showed up to support community police trust and um, reform. So that's kind of where we were with Minneapolis, as we had we had our hands completely tied in these other jurisdictions, rushing to meet the critical needs in those communities. But there was no question at any point, long even before I got there, that the Civil Rights Division could have been in more jurisdictions to help support and really kind of promote the longer term change that needed to happen in some of these local departments. So so let me ask you, Vanita, because under your leadership, there were a number of pattern and practice investigations. There were the consent decrees, which means that the Justice Department was basically forcing police department to institute reforms, there is a kind of fatalism uh, about this issue, which you can understand, because these incidents keep on happening. So help us understand, so two questions. One is, in the work that the Civil Rights Division was doing, what did you see that was actually working? And what have been the major impediments to actually getting these uh, reforms to take root and to make a difference? Yeah, I mean, you know, I um, there were in consent decrees in places like Los Angeles after Rodney King. That was the original um, genesis of the Justice Department having jurisdiction to investigate police departments this way. LAPD, MPD in D.C., Seattle, Cleveland. If you look at where those police departments were, L.A. was so long ago that I think there's been a fair bit of kind of, there are new problems there, I should say. But if you looked at the transformation of some of these major city police departments from the time that the Justice Department came in to two or three years after the consent decree was over, and these things, these consent decrees were not, they often were five years. Um, they, they took time in recognition of kind of the level of change and the amount of political will that was required to actually change culture, change practices and the like. But these were very changed places when the Justice Department left. And they weren't perfect. I say this publicly all the time. There is no such thing as a perfect police department. Uh, And the Justice Department's not going to be able to wave a wand even after five years to say, oh, there won't be any more critical incidents. The difference is that departments that have seen that kind of intervention and had to engage at that level of deep reform and investigation when these things happen they know how to self-correct and they have that kind of leadership to do it versus police departments that aren't studying it that aren't looking at it that aren't self-correcting that don't even know where the problems lie that have just are thinking about these things as like a few bad apples versus what's happening systemically or structurally in the police department and um, and looking at where's the community even like engage with this police department to help push for reform in more of a collaborative way. So there are studies and evaluations that have been done. I think there needs to be more. Um, and you can talk to chiefs and community advocates in some of these departments or in these cities to kind of document the change were any of these, did any of them result in perfect police departments? Absolutely not. But, you know, what is so dispiriting and, in fact, enraging to so many people is that time after time, these police officers, you know, they're put on paid 
leave or unpaid administrative leave. In this particular case, as you pointed out, the police chief acted pretty swiftly to terminate them. But in the end, they are, in so many cases, they are not charged or they are not prosecuted or they are not convicted. So what is the problem there? I mean, look, that's a different set of problems. And I'm, I'm going to dig into that. But I actually, at some point, I want to return to this issue around systemic reform. The pro- there are a lot of problems with criminal accountability of police officers in this country. Uh, there's the problem of district attorney's offices that work day in and day out with the same police departments. They are their investigators about this concern about having too close of a relationship between the police department and the DA's office, such that there isn't a level of independence and independent assessment on a police officer's actions. Those concerns are real. It's why it has been part of what has propelled in recent years, a series of more civil rights minded district attorney candidates running for office and getting elected is in in booting out DAs that were just seen as completely part of the kind of local law enforcement machine. And so you've seen district at some prosecutor's offices, more progressive offices create these independent commissions. The state of Wisconsin actually created an independent body for the state to investigate police uh, officer involved um, uh, violence. There are different things that people of jurisdictions have done to address this, but this concern about the lack of kind of independence and independent investigation is real. It's why a lot of these jurisdictions turned to the Justice Department But I will also say, and I I think it it is a hard and controversial conversation, but it's one that we need to have, which is that the Justice Department's jurisdiction to prosecute officer-involved shootings is so limited. And I think there's a real conversation to be had. As I said, it requires the highest criminal intent standard there is in criminal law to be able to, to prosecute one of these cases and get a conviction. And... DA's offices at the state level have a lot more options. They can prosecute recklessness. They can prosecute negligence. In the Justice Department, the bar is much higher. And so but there has to be a look course, what that jurisdiction is. But of course, changing the standard, lowering the bar would require federal legislation, right? And uh, is there any chance that would happen? I mean, you just, you're saying start a conversation, but that's a, that's a heavy lift, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's a heavy lift, but I mean, all of this is a heavy lift. And the answer can't be that we just kind of brush our hands off and sit in a place of persistent frustration and violence. I mean, this is my response, too, when people are like, oh, these consent decrees, you know, there's still people getting killed. It's like the answer. It isn't that the consent decree model is perfect, but there have been real gains in police departments that have had long histories of abuse and violence in really confronting some serious systemic deficiencies around training, accountability, supervision, and the whole gamut that have seen different outcomes. Again, not perfect, but mm-hmm. I just don't believe in this in this area or in any, I'm a civil rights lawyer. Every problem I tackle from voting rights to, to police violence, these are long entrenched problems that are rooted in the founding of our country. And if my answer is, damn it, this is too hard. I'm not, I can't push Congress, Congresses do nothing or these problems aren't gonna change, yeah, then sit it out. Like, don't be a part of the effort for change. But I think that there there are strategies, interventions, we need to make them better. We need to push to make the law better. Um, I don't think there's enough accountability in these cases. And I think that there is a culture even among prosecutors that needs to change as well as when we're talking about policing and police departments. Yeah, we talked before about how the kinds of investigations you did uh, into police abuses has not been a 
priority in this Justice Department. And, uh, you know, you spurred me while I was looking at the Justice Department website uh, to look further at their list of priorities. And there's no reference to the um, Civil Rights Division or investigations into police abuses. In fact, on the contrary, uh, the Attorney General Barr created this, announced this commission on law enforcement that talks about, and I'm looking at it now, uh, the troubling continued lack of trust and respect for law enforcement that persists in many communities. The job of a cop is tougher than now than ever before, all of which most people can agree with, except that the kinds of issues we're talking about today do not seem to be addressed. So tell us what you know about what your former division is doing. It's now headed by a guy named Eric Dribond. Tell us a little bit about what you know about what he's made priorities and has he continued any of these sorts of investigations at all, as far as you know? Well, I mean, Eric Dryband came in, I think, two plus years after the start of the Trump administration, and I don't think is terribly empowered vis-a-vis the attorney general, who seems to be driving and setting the tone for almost everything. The dismantling of the policing work at the Civil Rights Division started on Jeff Sessions' watch, and he was very intent on this. When I was the head of the division, he called me in for an oversight hearing and, you know, reamed me for being an aggressive civil rights lawyer on policing as though that was a kind of the biggest insult in the world. So this was part of this this mission. Attorney General Barr has picked right up and has in some ways made it even worse by giving a series of speeches around the country talking about the disrespect to police officers and not at all even acknowledging communities and has really created this you know further exacerbated the divide uh, between law enforcement and in the communities that they serve and the president did this he did it in July of 2017 uh, where he very famously talking in New York to a police department, talked about how police officers should be roughing up suspects as they're putting their heads in the police cars. You know, this, it may seem small, but this stuff really adds up. It isn't just that they've walked away and abdicated their congressionally mandated responsibility to support police community trust building, to support police reform. They are literally furthering the polarization and divide and furthering this like warrior mentality of law enforcement as us and community as them and that they are at war with each other. And so, you know, I I just think this is, it's more than, it's more than just the work. It's even the kind of rhetoric that's, that's coming out. The president tweeted this morning, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. Your reaction? Uh, It's absolute and total disgust. Uh, It is here we have a situation where we should have the Justice Department on the ground in Minneapolis uh, working with community leaders, activists, local officials, showing real leadership in this moment. And the president should be showing leadership. And instead, he's basically calling for the shooting of protesters. I I mean, look, every day is a new low. I can never, you know, in my wildest dreams, I had a complete failure of imagination about how how affected we would be by this president's fundamental lack of decency and leadership. But, you know, so should I be surprised? Maybe I shouldn't, but it's terrible. And I think that this stuff is really corrosive and is really damaging at a time when people 
are in such pain and to be black in America right now, to be black and brown in America right now is um, people are really deeply in pain right now. Um, and, and this is his response. Uh, Vanita, we're, we're going to ask you questions about another issue, which you're passionate about, which is voting in a minute. But I also wanted to get your reaction to the uh, news that uh, a CNN reporter was arrested by the by the local police there. Yeah, it's that, that's totally outrageous. I mean, again, here we have an, a black reporter as well. I just want to I want to name that. But he was doing his job. He was on live TV and got arrested that way. And meanwhile, the four officers who were involved in the killing of Mr. Floyd um, are not arrested. So again, this is this is why people are rightfully outraged. And we've got a First Amendment in this country. And that that journalist was doing his job. But in many ways, this is kind of where we are in America. You know, we can also pull in the, the fact that in retaliation for Twitter actually complying with its own community standards, decided to put up warnings when the president misleads voters about elections and voting information when he did this thing this morning, basically calling for or incentivizing shootings of protesters, Twitter actually like blocked it. And, you know, in retaliation, he issues this bogus executive order. Meanwhile, by the way, Facebook is doing nothing um, and is allowing these messages to be amplified. And it corrodes our democracy. It corrodes the leadership in this country. And so there's a lot of different touch points on this. This may be the perfect segue to talk about voting, but I am deeply distressed about this. I, I was going to say that I, I imagine that as you think about how to effectuate change and these issues of, of police abuse, that the ballot box is one of the most important ways to do that. And yet voting is uh, under an enormous amount of uh, duress these days, Supreme Court decisions, a president who traffics in conspiracy theories about voting, and a whole uh, host of other issues. So give us your sense of what the stakes are right now in terms of giving Americans, many of whom have been uh, historically dis disenfranchised, access to, uh, to voting, and where you think the priorities are in terms of pushing forward on this issue. So I think before COVID-19, there was a real sense by those of us who work in the voting rights space that 2020 was going to bring a lot of challenges on the voter suppression front. We have been a nation saddled by efforts to um, suppress the vote and kind of our elections have been seated on exclu racial exclusion of, of black people, of women and the like. In 2020, there's, you know, we knew that the president had come in and been ushered in claiming without any evidence whatsoever that millions of people had voted in 2016 illegally. And so we, we understood that this was going to be a major challenge, um, and especially also in a time of you know, rampant disinformation online, the ability to kind of suppress the vote, to find all kinds of ways to make people fearful, to, to have them feel like they should not even bother to participate, which is a form of voter suppression as well, that all of that would be on steroids and that much harder to combat. And then COVID happens. And you see immediately in early March, states like Louisiana and other states needing to postpone their primaries because people were literally afraid of, um, of voting amid the pandemic and showing up in person at the poll sites. And so then you have Wisconsin. And Wisconsin, you have the incredibly partisan effort to maintain the in-person election. Uh, you've got a, a, you know, at every level, partisanship infects the Wisconsin primary. 
from decisions made at the local level to the United States Supreme Court. And the images around Wisconsin where voters were forced to choose between their health and their vote were really gutting and jarring. And so right now for the civil rights community, we are pushing on a number of fronts. One is that we need Congress to give uh, $4 billion to the states to get voting by mail in place and to be able to expand early voting and um, voter registration in the lead up to the November election. People are not able to register at government agencies right now. They need to have expanded online voting registration. But people also, there are a lot of communities that don't vote by mail. Um, historically. And we need to be able to have those options in place so people can show up at the polls and prevent long lines if there's much expanded early voting um, and do the social distancing and have CDC compliant polling sites and the like. So we're pushing in Congress for this for this money, but we are also pushing in the states. Every state runs its own elections in secretaries of state Republican and Democratic are pushing for these rules changes in order to have smooth elections, even while the issue is being completely politicized and conspiracy theories and lies from the president. And so we're, we're helping to support those efforts in the 50 states to get all of these, these different ways to vote amid the pandemic in place. But there's this third bucket that is really important, and that is voter education and fighting disinformation. COVID has made all of these things much more difficult. More people are spending more time online. And so when you have the president tweeting and posting on Facebook utter falsehoods about vote by mail, about, and, and you have him saying it in such a way, and he's not alone, there are other uh, Republican officials that really essentially are saying that they are afraid of more people voting, that more people voting is a threat to their party. And, you know, I do this work as a nonpartisan uh, civil rights lawyer, and it is just, I have to go call it out like it is right now, which is that there is a party that in many, in too many parts of the party are really are threatened by more people voting in this country. And it's why there's been this very intentional agenda to create all kinds of obstacles to people uh, voting. Everything from disenfranchising people who've served out their criminal sentences already to purging voters off of the rolls unlawfully uh, and more. And this is, we have to fight this. We have to, we're engaging at the leadership conference with Facebook and Twitter to, to pushing them um, and in their face, quite honestly, to help get them to combat disinformation and to help provide voter education, but also to work in communities around the country to get information out that is correct. There's gonna to need to be a massive public education effort this summer and in the fall to educate voters about how they can vote in November and to make sure that they are energized and activated to vote. There is so much at stake with this with this mm-hmm. election. The president signed this uh, executive order uh, yesterday that seeks to do away with the protections that uh, social media firms now have, internet firms now have for publishing material, basically the law now 
exempts them from uh, defamation suits when people say horrible and defamatory false things about you on Twitter. You cannot sue Twitter or Facebook. Now, the president is obviously doing it from the perspective of he thinks Twitter is um, is censoring uh, conservative voices, but it is also allowing a lot of uh, really hateful stuff up on its platforms. Your thoughts on the executive order? So on the executive order, I think it is very likely unlawful. I think there are really serious issues at stake that we need to contend with and reckon with around the regulation of these companies and and like the fact that the public law regime that exists around these countries is old and needs to be examined in our new world where social media has has become so much more the source of news and and facts and what responsibility these platforms have. They are not neutral platforms. Um, And when the Patriot Act created this immunity um, in Section 230 for these companies, that was a very different world than the place that these social media companies occupy today. This executive order, though, is not the way to do it. And it is That's simply the president out of his own vanity and narcissism being angry at Twitter. There's no evidence whatsoever that demonstrates conservative bias um, on these platforms. And I think it really kind of obscures the fact that there needs to be a serious conversation about what kind of regulatory framework needs to exist. And I, there will be one. I have no doubt that there are a lot of conversations afoot already, but Trump is not in a position to have credibility to lead that conversation. I've got one uh, one follow up on voting. You mentioned um, voting by mail, and I think even before COVID nineteen, we were going to have a record number of Americans voting by mail, and and now there are states that uh, that say that, that as long as the uh, ballot arrive, is postmarked by election day, it can be counted. There's a big push for that, which raises the possibility that we may not know who won this election for days after the election is held itself. And we have a president who has uh, repeatedly talked about elections being rigged, has spread conspiracy theories. How worried are you about the possibility that this president could kind of wreak havoc in a, in a kind of an, uh, a post-election? election period like that. Yeah, look, I'm really glad that you have raised this. I think that a lot of the president's attacks on mail-in ballots and voting by mail almost have less to do with those with with voting by mail and more to do about with so trying to sow the seeds of doubt in the legitimacy of the November election. He wants, he's already talking about how this will be a rigged election and saying if it's if more and more people are voting using these so-called mail-in ballots that it, the, the election will be rigged. This is exactly, this is out of a playbook. We, I'm a part of a, a bipartisan scenario planning table that was created a year ago and we kind of anticipated that the that the president and officials may be in this place where they would seek to delegitimize a lawful election, a fair election, and not cede power. And so I think this is real. This is, you know, people may think this is cuckoo crazy conspiracy theory, but actually what we're seeing right now is bearing itself out to be true. And so we have to be prepared. I also think that as this election, because of COVID, there will be much higher percentages of people voting by mail. And it means that in a country where the media wants to be the first to call the election, there's breaking news alerts at every moment, we need to educate ourselves and the media and and resist the urge 
to have, be the first out the gate to call the winner um, because we aren't going to be able to call the winner on election night in an election amid COVID. It's going to take days. And Wisconsin in the primary took a full week for them to count the absentee ballots uh, in order to call the election. And so we've got to be setting the tone and the culture right now to anticipate that in order to have every ballot counted, and there, I'm going to tell you, there's going to also be a lot of contestation. There's going to be a lot of litigation around the counting of these ballots, and that stuff could also take time. And it's not a great place. We don't we don't want to be in that place. But amid COVID, where you know in New York, typically five percent of voters vote by mail. This could be an election where 60, 70 percent of New Yorkers vote by mail. And you've got to give election officials the time and space to actually count those ballots. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's going to be a part of it. But there will be, I suspect, significant contestation of, of the results and the legitimacy of it. And I do think that there are active efforts right now to already kind of undermine the integrity of our democracy, of our elections. And that's part of what these tweets are about. It sounds like we're preparing for a redux of uh, Bush versus Gore, uh, Trump versus Biden before the Supreme Court later this year. Well, the goal is, I mean, this may actually not to kind of create more fear with folks, but it's going to be more complicated even than a Bush versus Gore, because this will be nationwide the need for election officials to be able to count these ballots, to litigate in, you know, possibly many, many states around the country around how these ballots are being counted. So it's it could be even more complex and it could be not. I mean, we'll see. But we are we have to be ready to protect ballots, to protect voting. There's a lot of litigation happening right now to preemptively take uh, charge of this and to set the rules around how voting by mail systems are are set up. And the goal is now with six months to the election, I mean, I think Wisconsin in some ways, the one silver lining is it was a wake up call for all of the work that's needed to actually run a smooth election, uh, a general election in November. And that's the work that we're all really hard uh, at work doing right now and preparing for over the next six months. But yeah, I mean, we, we have to be ready and it has to be we're building the infrastructure to be ready to protect the right to vote uh, because the forces that are that exist to to make voting difficult to suppress the rights of voters historically disenfranchised black voters native american voters voters with disabilities all of this are also hard at work well it sounds like we're going to have many reasons to come back to you during this election season uh, as events unfold so vanita gupta i really appreciate uh, you taking the time it's an important discussion and um we'll have you back that sounds great thank you for having me after we taped this interview, Derek Chauvin, the Minneapolis police officer seen in that video with his knee on George Floyd's neck, was arrested and charged with third-degree murder and manslaughter. And Attorney General William Barr issued a statement confirming the Justice Department's separate civil rights investigation into the incident, saying that images seen on that video were, quote, harrowing and deeply disturbing. Thanks to Vanita Gupta, president and CEO of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights and the former chief of the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division for joining us on Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs>